It was about six o'clock on a Thursday evening. Jesus and his disciples were gathered together in the upper room of an average home in the center of the city of Jerusalem. They had gathered together on this particular evening to celebrate the most important feast in the Jewish religion, the Passover. And the Passover was a time of great celebration for the Jewish people. It was the time where each year they would gather together as families and remember and celebrate and give thanks for how God had had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. How God had provided for them a sacrificial lamb. God in his final plague against the Egyptians as he was seeking to have his people freed from slavery in Egypt. God in his final plague had declared that he was going to have the firstborn son of all people in Egypt killed to finally convince the Pharaoh to let my people go. But God told the Israelites that if they were to sacrifice an unblemished lamb, a perfect spotless lamb, and paint that lamb's blood above the doorway of their homes, that that night when the angel of death came through Egypt, he would see the blood of that sacrificial lamb and he would pass over their home and spare their children, their family inside. And so God in that momentous evening liberated the Israelites from their bondage as slaves in Egypt. And that began the journey of the exodus and then ultimately bringing his people into the promised land. And so for hundreds of years, the Israelites had gathered together on this day, the Passover, to remember God's faithfulness and to remember what he had done for them. And it was a time of great joy. It was a time of great celebration. And I can only imagine that on this particular evening, this Thursday night, about 6 o'clock, Jesus' disciples expected that this was going to be another great time of celebration. You see, Jesus was at the height of his ministry. He was at the height of his popularity. Just a few days earlier, he had rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and thousands of people lined the streets shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, believing that Jesus was going to come and be the Messiah who would save them and liberate them from oppression, from their bondage, their captivity under the Roman Empire. And so Jesus' disciples thought that this Passover was going to be something really special. That they were on the verge of this new messianic kingdom coming into the world. But as they would quickly discover, this Passover was going to be far different from what they expected. You see, at this particular Passover meal, Jesus began to share some things with his disciples that were very foreign to anything that they had ever heard before in the Passover. All the common elements were there. The bread, the wine, the meat. But on this particular occasion, Jesus shared words with his disciples that would forever radically redefine the world's understanding of this Passover meal. And the disciples at this point, didn't understand any of it. Jesus, as he began the Passover meal, the Gospel of Matthew records that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Well, when Jesus declared this bread to be his body, His disciples, I can only imagine, were looking at each other wondering, what is he talking about? This bread is my body. I wonder if some of them thought back to that amazing day up on the hillside in Galilee when Jesus had been teaching over 5,000 people. And the people began to get hungry and Jesus and his disciples found a little boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus took this simple meal from this little boy and did one of his greatest miracles, feeding over 5,000 people 
supernaturally multiplying the bread and the fish. And after he had performed this miracle, Jesus proclaimed to his disciples and the followers who were there, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never go hungry. And here again in this Passover meal, Jesus is declaring, this bread is my body. Take and eat. And I wonder if some of the disciples thought back to that day on the hillside in Galilee when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. But they still had no idea what he was talking about. How could they? They thought Jesus was going to be the future king of the Jews. They thought Jesus was going to create a political kingdom. They thought Jesus was going to free them from their bondage under the Roman Empire. They had no idea. Jesus then picked up the cup of wine and he gave thanks to the Lord and he offered it to his disciples. And he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This must have stunned his disciples. For Jesus to say, this is my blood poured out for many. Jesus, what are you talking about? Jesus, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Your blood poured out when? Where? Why? They had no clue. They had no clue. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. What, Jesus? We're going to do this again next year, Jesus. Next year, you're going to be reigning as king. And then Jesus said something that probably shocked them more than anything else that evening. In John chapter 13, starting in verse 21, it says that after Jesus had broken the bread and distributed the cup, after he had said these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And he testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him disciples had no clue. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and buy what was needed for the Passover feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And the disciples had no idea what was happening, where Judas was going, the plot that was beginning to unfold. During this Passover meal, Jesus shared some of the most important and intimate truths of his ministry with his disciples. The Gospel of John records for us this teaching of the Last Supper, and Jesus began sharing with his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one 
comes to the Father except through me. Jesus went on to say, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And again, the disciples must have just been sitting there, dumbfounded, in shock. The prince of this world, Satan, is coming for you, Jesus? Jesus went on. He said, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean? What does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more? Again, they thought he was going to be the king of Israel in a few days. They thought they were right on the verge of overcoming Roman occupation. They kept asking, what does he mean? What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying, John reports. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And they never understood that in a few short hours, they would weep and they would mourn and they would grieve while the world rejoiced as their Savior, as their Messiah would give his life. One of the most powerful teachings Jesus gave during this Last Supper meal was in John 15, verses 12 through 13. Jesus told his disciples, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. And then he went on and said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. The disciples didn't realize at the time But Jesus was only hours away from living out this powerful gospel truth, this powerful demonstration of self-sacrificial love, a demonstration of self-sacrificial love like the world had never seen before and would never see again. Now it's important to realize that while all this is going on, as Jesus is teaching these powerful truths to his disciples, Judas has gone to betray his friend, his teacher, his master. He's gone to betray Jesus Christ into the hands of the Jewish ruling authorities, the Sanhedrin. See, Judas was the betrayer. And he was going to be used by God to put the events of the cross into motion. But while Judas was the betrayer, friends, you need to understand something tonight. God was always in control. Judas may have initiated the plot, but God was always in control. And even in Jesus' arrest this evening, God had a plan in that too. You see, the Jewish religious leaders had conspired. The Gospel of Matthew tells us in Matthew 26 starting in verse 5, that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, they had plotted to arrest and kill Jesus. But they wanted to do this after the Passover. They wanted to wait till after the Passover feast was over, after the millions of additional Jews who had flocked into Jerusalem for this celebration, after they had all gone home, they wanted to arrest Jesus when they could do this quietly, without raising a big commotion, because Jesus had thousands of followers. And they feared the reaction of the people were it to become known that they had been conspiring to arrest and put Jesus to death. And so the gospel tells us they actually wanted to wait a week later. But you see, God had a plan and a purpose for Jesus to be sacrificed on the Passover. Because God had determined that his son was going to be the perfect sacrificial lamb 
as Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 tells us. Just as God had once provided a sacrificial offering for the people of Israel so that he would pass over their homes as he was bringing on that final terrible plague against the people of Egypt. God had planned to provide a perfect sacrificial lamb to forgive his people of their sins, to forgive all of us of our sins. And God knew that Jesus Christ was going to be that perfect sin offering. He was going to be the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And as John the Baptist had declared three years earlier, when he saw Jesus approaching the Jordan River, John looked out at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And tonight, Jesus would fulfill that amazing purpose. He would become the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He would become the ultimate fulfillment of what every Passover for the last few hundred years had been looking forward to, the arrival of the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus would become that perfect sacrificial Lamb of God, our substitute for our sins. You see, during Passover, not only did the Jews celebrate this special Passover feast, but one of the amazing aspects that took place every year during the Passover, millions of Jews would flock to Jerusalem because each family, each Jewish family, was commanded in Jewish law to sacrifice a lamb to atone for their sins, to cover their sins from the previous year. And so millions of Jews would come into Israel and they would purchase these sacrificial offerings, a lamb, and they would take it up to the temple where the priests would sacrifice these lambs on behalf of the sins of the people. Now, historians tell us that the priests each year during the sacrifice of the Passover would offer a quarter of a million lambs as sacrificial offerings for the sins of the people. Can you imagine that? 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed each year at the temple in Jerusalem for the sins of the people. Historians tell us it would take 600 priests, each of them slaughtering four lambs per minute in order to accomplish this Passover task. And the blood would flow down the hill of Jerusalem as the people sought to atone for their sins through the sacrifice of these lambs. And they would do this year after year after year. But as the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away the sins of sinful human beings. And God required a perfect sacrifice a perfect substitute which is why he sent his son Jesus Christ into this world to be our perfect representative our perfect sacrifice giving his life shedding his blood so that we might be forgiven at the end of this Passover meal with his disciples this meal that has come to be known as the last supper Jesus led his disciples in a hymn And then he asked them to follow him outside the gates of Jerusalem. And they walked about three-quarters of a mile to the Mount of Olives where they went to what is known as the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a private garden that may have very likely been owned by one of Jesus' followers who had allowed Jesus and his disciples to use it as a private retreat. John tells us it was a place that they would go to often probably a place where they would go to to get away from the crowds, a place where they would go to rest and fellowship and pray with one another. And so on this evening, after they had eaten this last supper, Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had the majority of his disciples wait outside the front entrance to the garden, the main gate. And he took his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him to pray in the inner parts of the garden. Jesus went to pray for the world, for his disciples, 
for you, for me, for all future believers. And it is this time of prayer, this time in the garden that would begin a three-day process that would literally shake the foundations of the world. A process that would forgive sin and provide the opportunity for new life for you and for me. It was also here in the Garden of Gethsemane where the physical sufferings of Jesus began. But you see, Jesus' suffering wasn't due to the fact that he feared death. You see, earlier in his ministry, Matthew records in Matthew 10, 28, that Jesus had taught his disciples, do not fear the one who can kill the body. He said, fear the one who can kill your soul or destroy your soul. Jesus was not afraid of the physical sacrifice. It wasn't the physical sacrifice that he was concerned about that caused him such great anxiety, but it was what he understood he was about to undertake spiritually that caused him such great fear, such great anxiety. Matthew 26, verses 36 through 39 tells us then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them sit here while I go over there and pray he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled then he said to them my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death stay here and keep watch with me going a little farther he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed my father If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What did Jesus mean when he said, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. In the Old Testament, the metaphor of the cup most often refers to the cup of God's wrath. And throughout the Old Testament, we read of God pouring out his wrath, pouring out the cup of God's wrath upon sinful nations, upon sinful people. And Jesus understood that he was about to bear the full brunt of God's wrath. As this cup of God's wrath, because of God's holiness, Jesus was about to take upon himself all of the sin of all of humanity throughout all of history. And he prayed, God, if there's any way, if there's any way that this cup can be taken from me, Lord, please. But then he said, but Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was willing. He was willing to take that cup if it was the only way if it was the only way for you and I to be saved. The Gospels tell us that during this time of prayer, Jesus experienced a tremendous amount of suffering because of this anxiety and this stress that he was under. In fact, Luke 22, verse 44, tells us that being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. at the voice of Jesus declaring, I am He. You see, this was the voice of God speaking. This was the voice that created the entire universe, that spoke the universe into existence. This was the voice that stilled the storms. This was the voice that raised the dead. And now Jesus says to this mob, I am He, and they fall flat on their backs. And I think Jesus just wanted to let everybody know who was really in control here this night. See, Jesus was always in control. No one was going to take Jesus' life. Jesus was going to willingly give his life as a sacrificial offering. The soldiers then get up and they come to put Jesus in chains. And as the soldiers approach Jesus to put him in chains, the Gospels record that Peter 
Jesus' most fervent disciple, Peter, grabs a sword and he rushes up to the guards about to arrest Jesus and he strikes a blow at one of the guards. A blow that glances off the side of his head and cuts off his ear. This guard falls to the ground and is bleeding profusely. And friends, you've got to imagine at this point, this mob is going crazy. I mean, they're about to go nuts. Everybody starts drawing their swords. They're about to just throw down weapons and arms, and it's just going to get crazy out of control in a hurry. And Jesus steps right into the middle of this madness. And he says, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know those who live by the sword will die by the sword? And Jesus stops this possible riot, this potential riot that could have spilled out of control in a hurry. And Jesus steps down and he picks up this ear. And he touches the side of this soldier's head. And he heals this man. And heals his ear miraculously right there on the spot. And Jesus, according to Matthew 26, says to his disciples and all the soldiers listening, again, he was always in control. He was always in control. He said to his disciples, as the soldiers are placing chains on him, he said, do you not realize that my Father in heaven, I could call to my Father in heaven and he would send down a dozen legion of angels, a dozen legions of angels to save me. All I need to do is say the word. Friends, a dozen legion of angels. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. Jesus is saying I could call down 72,000 soldiers 72,000 angels right now this very minute to come to my aid. You guys are clueless. You don't know who you're dealing with here. Just a few hundred years earlier, King Hezekiah and the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judea had been surrounded, besieged by the Syrian army. And God sent one angel, one angel from the Lord, who came and wiped out 185,000 men from the Assyrian army in a single night. And Jesus says, don't you realize I could call down 12 legions, 72,000 angels to come to my aid at any minute? Jesus was always in control. And he was willingly going to give his life. Jesus was then taken to a series of trials. The first trial was with a man named Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Annas himself had been the high priest of Israel at various times. Annas was sort of like the godfather of the Jewish religious authorities at this time. And in John 18, verses 19 through 24 we read what took place in this first trial in front of Annas. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So they take Jesus across the courtyard to Caiaphas, who was the high priest at this time. Matthew uh, Mark 14, verses 55 through 62, tell us what took place in front of this trial with Caiaphas. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I will build another, not made by man. 
Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Friends, this is a kangaroo court going on. They bring these false witnesses to testify against Jesus, but even these false witnesses can't get their story straight. One guy's testimony contradicts another guy's testimony, and I can just imagine the high priest is just getting frustrated because he's trying to frame Jesus so that he can sentence him to death. But even their false testimonies don't corroborate. And so finally the high priest just asks Jesus plainly and straightforwardly, He asks him, Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus declared, I am. Now when Jesus said, I am, he wasn't simply responding in the in the affirm, affirmatively to the high priest high priest question Jesus was declaring that he was God in human flesh Jesus was saying I am the words I am was the name of God that God himself revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai when Moses asked God Lord if they ask me who sent me who should I tell them sent me and God said I am has sent you And when Jesus declared in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, I am, he was boldly and publicly proclaiming that you are looking at God in human flesh right here in your midst. And at this declaration, the high priest tore his robe in disgust. And he shouted, blasphemy! Blasphemy! Who is this mere man declaring himself to be God? And the Gospels tell us that it was then and there that the beatings began. The Sanhedrin surrounded Jesus. They blindfolded him and they took turns punching him in the face and mocking him, telling him, prophesy, Jesus, who hit you? Jesus, tell us who hit you now, Jesus. Jesus was blindfolded. He couldn't see the punches coming. He couldn't roll with the punches in anticipation. He was being struck squarely and bluntly across the face over and over again as the Jewish religious leaders mocked him and ridiculed him. While all this was going on, Jesus' friend Peter was out in the courtyard denying him three times. Jesus was now all alone. He was all alone. After the trials before Annas and Caiaphas, the Jewish religious leaders deemed Jesus guilty of blasphemy, a crime punishable by death under Jewish law. But you see, the Jews at this time under Roman occupation had no authority to kill anyone. And so they took him to Pilate. Pilate begins questioning Jesus. But it becomes very apparent to Pilate right away that Jesus isn't guilty of anything. In fact, Pilate just sort of gets annoyed by the whole situation at first. And so Pilate says, isn't this guy from Galilee? Herod's in town. You take him to Herod to deal with him. Herod was the king of Israel at this time. And Pilate figured, I'm going to let Herod deal with this problem. So the soldiers marched Jesus out of Pilate's residence to Herod's residence in Jerusalem. Herod the king of Israel was actually very excited to meet Jesus. He had heard about Jesus and he wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle for him. Now keep in mind as Jesus is being marched into Herod's palace in the back of his mind he's recalling that this is the very guy who three years earlier murdered his best friend John the Baptist. Took off his head. And now Jesus is being taken in front of this man. And Herod begins to question Jesus. But Jesus remains silent. He won't answer. Finally, Herod gets frustrated and he has his guards mock Jesus. They put a purple robe on Jesus and they tease him. They hail him the king of the Jews and they mock him. 
and Herod sends them back to Pilate. Well, Pilate doesn't see Jesus guilty of anything. Pilate, at this point, is getting more and more frustrated because by now it's early in the morning the next day on Friday. And word has gotten out that Jesus has been arrested and a large crowd has begun to gather outside of Pilate's residence. And so Pilate begins questioning Jesus again. But he finds Jesus not guilty of anything. And so he comes out to the Jews and says to the Jewish Jewish religious leaders in the crowd that's gathered, this man's not guilty. I find him guilty of nothing. He needs to be released. And the Jews start shouting, no, crucify him. Crucify him. He needs to be sentenced to death. Well, Pilate begins fearing an uprising, a revolt. And remember, there were millions of Jews in Jerusalem because of the Passover. Well, Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus because he knows he's not guilty of anything. So Pilate thinks, well, maybe I can satisfy their bloodlust if I just take Jesus out back and torture him, severely beat him. So Pilate orders his soldiers to take Jesus out into the courtyard where they tie Jesus to a concrete post and using one of the cruelest torture devices ever devised by man, a whip called a cat of nine tails. It was basically a baseball bat handle with 18 to 24 inch long leather strips with woven together and inside these leather strips were lead balls and pieces of bone and pieces of glass woven into these leather straps this cat of nine tails and they tied Jesus up to this post and with a guard on each side of him they took turns striking Jesus in the back and as this cat of nine tails would strike Jesus' back the lead balls and the chips of bone and the glass would embed themselves into his flesh and they would tear it out and then the guard on the other side would take a turn and he'd strike Jesus across the back and pull it out Jewish law said that a person could only be whipped like this 39 times because they had determined that a whipping of upwards of 40 lashes could kill somebody. And because they didn't want to be guilty of committing murder, they would limit their floggings to 39 in case they accidentally miscounted. But you see, the Romans, they weren't bound by Jewish law. They were sadistic, they were evil, they were torturers. And they could have whipped Jesus as many times as they wanted to with this cat of nine tails. Dr. C. Truman Davis, a medical doctor who's meticulously studied the crucifixion from a medical perspective, he describes the effects of the Roman cat of nine tails used in this whipping. He says the heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across a person's shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. Eusebius, a third-century historian, confirms Dr. Davis's description. He writes, The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscle, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Friends, Jesus was horribly tortured. And he did this for you and for me. Pilate thought this whipping would satisfy the Jews' bloodlust, and so his guards take him back in front of this large mob, this crowd that had gathered 
And Pilate said, here he is, here's Jesus. But once again, the crowd began to chant, crucify him, crucify him. And again, Pilate didn't want anything to do with this man's death. But, but, but because he feared a possible riot, Pilate eventually gave in to the demands of the Jews. And he washed his hands and he said, his blood is now on your hands. You deal with him. And he ordered Jesus to be crucified. Before he was crucified, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was beaten again at the hands of the Romans. This time, the Roman soldiers fashioned a crude crown of thorns. Not little rose thorns. We're talking two to three inch long thorns. They fashioned into a crown and they pushed down into his head. Blood would have been streaming down Jesus' face. Medical doctors have reported that as the nerves in the head were pierced, it would have caused tremendous disfiguration and uncontrollable twitching in Jesus' face. They then put his robe back on his torn, bleeding back. This purple robe that Herod had given him, they gave Jesus a scepter and they began to bow down and hail him king of the Jews, mocking him. The Gospels then say they take this staff, this mock scepter that they had put in Jesus' hand while they were pretending to feign worship and they took this scepter and they began beating Jesus across the head with it. Around 9 a.m., Jesus was taken in preparation for his crucifixion. The Romans strapped the crossbar of the cross to Jesus' back. Historians say it weighed anywhere between 100 and 125 pounds. They would strap this crossbar to the back of the criminals on their way to be crucified. And Jesus would then have to walk three-quarters of a mile to the hill of Calvary where the crucifixion would take place. The Bible records that Jesus only got about halfway there before he just collapsed under the weight and could no longer go any farther. Some medical doctors who have studied the events of the Passion say that Jesus at this point may have been under a condition known as hypovolemic shock, having lost upwards of one-fifth of the blood in his body. His body was beginning to shut down. And the Roman soldiers pulled a man from the crowd to help carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way to Calvary. Once they got to Calvary, as they were walking to Calvary, all along the way, people were mocking Jesus and spitting on him. These were the very same people who a week earlier were shouting, Hosanna! glory to the son of David, proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. Friends, not only was Jesus in extreme physical pain, but the emotional pain he was experiencing was very severe. As Jesus looked at these crowds, these people he had created, these people who he had loved, who a week earlier were hailing him as the king, and now were mocking him, laughing at him, spitting on him. And you know who else he saw in that crowd that day? He saw you. He saw me. He saw all people throughout the history of the world that he had made, that he loves. And Jesus determined to keep marching towards Golgotha because of his great love for us. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5.8 says that God proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And Jesus kept marching all the way to Calvary. Around noon that day, the crucifixion took place. Crucifixion was invented by the Persian Empire between 300 and 400 B.C., but it was perfected by the Romans in the first century B.C., and crucifixion is arguably the most painful death ever invented by man. It's where we get our term excruciating from. The term crucifixion, excruciating. 
Crucifixion was an extremely painful process, an extremely painful way to die. The physical pain was overwhelming. Jesus was first laid down back against this crossbeam. And his arms would have been stretched out as far as they could go. Oftentimes, the criminals in crucifixion, they would literally dislocate their shoulders from their joints as they were stretching their arms out. The soldiers then took five to seven inch long iron nails. And they took these nails and they would nail them through Jesus' wrists into the crossbeam. As the nails are being driven through Jesus' wrist, they're probably either rupturing or else fraying the nerve in Jesus' wrist, sending searing pain all through Jesus' upper body. The tendons in his, ner- in his wrist that would have been pierced would have forced Jesus' hands into a claw-like grip so that he could not open his hands as he's nailed to this cross. Jesus' legs were then crossed in front of him in a long nine-inch spike was driven by the Roman soldiers through Jesus' feet. And then Jesus' cross is lifted up. The way a person dies in crucifixion is typically through suffocation or heart failure. You see, what happens is as the victim is nailed to the cross with their arms outstretched, hanging by their wrists, What happens is the person cannot breathe. And what they need to do to breathe is push themselves up and take a breath, and then they hang back down again. The Gospels report that Jesus spoke seven short phrases from the cross. And probably the reason why Jesus only spoke these seven short phrases was because it was extremely difficult to speak as he would try to force himself up take a breath and then fall back down. Because the person could not breathe as they were hanging on the cross, they would either suffocate or their heart cavity, the pericardium, would fill with fluid. Their heart would fail. A few different physical effects that would ultimately lead to a person's death. As Jesus is hanging there on the cross, the crowd is mocking him. The thief to the next, next of him is mocking him. And the criminal on the other side says, this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom? And Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, lifts himself up and he says, today I tell you, me in paradise and he offers forgiveness to the criminal next to him not only was the physical pain severe but the spiritual agony was even worse Matthew 15 reports that as Jesus is hanging on the cross God's wrath is being poured out upon him as all of the sins of all of the humans throughout all of the history of the world are being placed upon Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrificial Lamb of God, who would be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Can you imagine, friends, the terror, the evil, the revenge, the hatred, the lust, the perversion, the betrayal, the lying, all of the wickedness of all time is being placed upon Jesus Christ. And he cries out to his Father in heaven, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the weight of sin is bearing down upon him. And he did this, friends, for you. He did this for me so that we might be saved. The Bible tells us that just before Jesus died, the sky grew dark. And as he was hanging on the cross, Jesus pushed himself up one last time, and in a loud voice he screamed, Tetaliste! Tetaliste. It 
is finished. It is finished. And he collapsed. And he died. Taking the sin of the world upon himself. When he screamed, Tetelestai, the Gospels record that the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the common areas of the temple, the curtain of the temple was ripped in two, symbolizing that there was now no more separation between God and man. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. There is now no longer any separation between God and man. Jesus tore the curtain in the temple in two. The Bible also reports that, reports that as Jesus yelled out, Tetelestai, that a huge earthquake shook all of Israel. You see, even the world trembled at the death of the one who holds all things together. Colossians 1, 16-17 tells us that through Jesus Christ all things were made. And in him all things hold together. And the rocks and the trees that cry out in praise to God shook and quaked and trembled as their creator took upon himself the sin of the world. Not only did the curtain in the temple tear in two and the earth shake, but the graves of righteous dead people, the gospels say, the graves of righteous dead people opened up and these dead people came back to life and were seen walking the streets of Jerusalem. People sometimes wonder, who were these righteous dead people that came back to life at Jesus' death? You know, friends, I think it very likely could have been followers of Jesus Christ who had recently passed away. People who had trusted in Jesus as their Savior, as the Messiah, who had passed away before his crucifixion. And now, here at the moment of his death, God supernaturally raised these people back to life, symbolizing Jesus' victory over death and over the grave. The Bible tells us that when the soldiers who had executed Jesus witnessed all these things happen, they said to one another, Surely this was the Son of God. We're going to play a video for you tonight that is somewhat of a visual reflection, a visual meditation on the events of Jesus' life and the passion that we've just described. I want you to take a look at this video, and when it's done, I'm going to come back up and introduce our time of communion. Touch my tongue and then I sing 
Isaiah and Isaiah 53 said this surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible tells us, friends, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is holy. He knows no sin. And yet each and every one of us has rebelled against God. We've all strayed from his will. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of our sin is death. We all deserve to die. 
because of our sins. But Paul goes on to say, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God in his great love for us provided a sacrificial offering in his son Jesus Christ when he died on that cross in our place. He did it for you. He did it for me. He took all of our sins upon himself. And when he died, he did not just die physically, but he died a spiritual death, taking upon himself our sins, crucifying them to the cross, shedding his blood so that we might be forgiven and made right in the eyes of our holy God. John, in chapter 1 of his gospel, says to those who believe him, to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives them the right to be called children of God. Friends, are you a child of God tonight? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you put your hope and trust in him? 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He did that on the cross. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so tonight, friends, I ask you the most important question that anyone could ever ask you. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Have you received the gift of forgiveness, of salvation, of new life that he's offered us, that he bought and paid for on the cross? You know, there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do of your own merits to make yourself right in the eyes of God. There's not enough good works. There's not enough money you can give. There's not enough service projects you can go and participate in. You can't earn it, you can't work for it, you can't buy it. Salvation and a relationship with God is a free gift that we must receive by faith when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to take communion together. Chaz and the worship team are going to come up and lead us in some songs and as we're worshiping together to close our night out, we're going to invite you to come forward and take communion. As Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And when we take communion, friends, communion is a meal for believers, a time of remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. And tonight I want to invite all of you as believers to come forward and receive the elements. If you're here tonight and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, why not make tonight your first communion? Why not leave here tonight knowing that you have made your life right with God? Why not leave here tonight knowing that you too are a child of God? As Chaz plays this first reflective peace for us tonight. I just want to encourage you right now, right here in the quiet of your own hearts, you can just bow your head where you're sitting. And even in a simple prayer, say, Jesus, thank you for what you did for me. I confess that I'm a sinner. And Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I want to accept the gift that you bought and paid for when you died on the cross. Jesus, I believe in you tonight. And I want you to be my Savior and Lord. Friends, God knows your heart. The words are inconsequential. But if you cry out to Jesus tonight, he will forgive you. He will wash your sins away. And you too can be a child of God. Please join us for communion tonight. Please put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you're not willing to do that or ready to do that, We just encourage you to just enjoy the music and think about what Jesus has done for you this evening. Communion is for believers.
but we want all of you to join us. So if you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, why not now? Why not right here? When you come forward to take the elements, you can take a cracker and take a cup and you can take it back to your seat and partake of the elements at your own time back in your chair. People on this side of the sanctuary and up in the balcony, we'd encourage you to come to this table first and center folks come to the center section and then same over here on the right side of the sanctuary. And Chaz is going to lead us in some songs and then the worship team is going to lead us in a couple songs of praise as we thank the Lord for what he's done for us. Let me open this in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you did when you sent your Son to die for our sins. And Lord Jesus, as we come now to the communion table, we remember that this represents your body and blood which was sacrificed for us so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Heavenly Father, if there's somebody here tonight who hasn't yet put their trust in you, I pray that even right now they might just say a simple prayer, acknowledging their need for you, that they might receive that free gift of eternal life, that gift of salvation, that their sins might be washed and cleansed and forgiven right here, right now, that they might come and participate in this communion meal for the first time tonight, knowing that they are a child of God. Thank you for your amazing grace, Lord Jesus. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise.